Hello, this is Paul Sachs. I'm editor-in-chief of Open Forum Infectious Diseases, and this is the OFID podcast, and that's OFID and not OFID. So one of the proposed benefits of social media is that it broadens our exposure to the way other people think and hence could make us more open-minded. Whether this actually happens is debatable, but it certainly happened to me when I began following the Twitter feed of our guest on today's podcast. Dr. Vinay Prasad, he's a practicing hematologist-oncologist and an associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and the author of two fascinating books, Ending Medical Reversal and Malignant, How Bad Policy and Bad Evidence Harm People with Cancer. Both books and his Twitter feed detail how doctors will often advocate for treatments long before they're proven to be effective, only later to recommend the opposite once carefully done studies have been done. Dr. Prasad has not been quiet either when it comes to our current pandemic, and hence I thought it would be very interesting to have him on to give us his impressions of our policies and treatments to date. A bit of an outsider, a hematologist-oncologist. So first, uh, Vinay, can you start by just telling us a bit about yourself, how you came to be a doctor, how you chose your specialty, and how you ended up as a champion of evidence-based medicine? Well, Dr. Sachs, thank you so much for having me, and it's a real pleasure to get a chance to talk to you. And thanks for those kind words. Uh, Very rarely does one leave a positive impression on someone on social media. So I'm from the Midwest, just outside of Chicago, and I did my college not too far from home in Michigan State University. And I think when I was a college student, I wasn't sure what I was going to do with my life. I had thought about a number of different things. I had a roommate who was really really gung-ho about going into medicine. And he was a kind of infectious personality. He let his enthusiasm carry in every direction. And, you know, he probably touched me a little bit because it got me thinking about medicine as well as a career. I didn't know a lot about it. There are no doctors in my family. I ended up taking the MCAT. And I probably, you know, didn't know what I was signing up for, but a sign-up I did. And so I started University of Chicago. Along the way, I got bitten by the evidence-based medicine bug, probably as a third-year student. We have a number of faculty members there who are superb evidence-based clinicians, practitioners of medicine. And when I was a resident at Northwestern in internal medicine, that was when I started to write a couple of papers and get into it. Um, I didn't really even understand that one could have a career doing evidence-based medicine or health policy is kind of what my life has become. But... You know, you start working at it, you publish a few papers, people start to know you for doing this kind of work, and it kind of snowballs. And I went to fellowship at the National Cancer Institute. By the time I finished fellowship, I had a sense that I would give this a shot. I didn't know how long I'd last in a university setting. Maybe I still don't know. I'm only six years out. Um, And I moved to Oregon. I was on faculty for five years there, and now recently at UCSF. I would say that, yeah, I practice hemonc. I'm still kind of interested in general medicine topics. We still do some research in that space. And my work is probably health policy and evidence-based medicine. Great. Okay. So now we have to shift to (laughs) COVID-19. And we'll start with something that should be right up your alley as a hematologist-oncologist. So as you know, the disease, especially in its Mm -hmm. severe forms, is associated with abnormal thrombosis and bleeding. Mm -hmm. So give me your observation of how we're approaching this problem and how you think we should be approaching this problem. Yeah, that's a great question. And I've looked at, oh my God, how many studies now? Maybe 20, 30 studies that have tried to ask the question if the propensity to clot or the propensity to bleed is different among COVID patients who are hospitalized or in the intensive care unit than other patients who usually would be hospitalized in the intensive care unit. And it's a very difficult thing to do those kinds of studies. Maybe there's a there's a net signal there that people believe that there's more of a prothrombotic risk. But 
if you really put a gun to my head and said, you know, am I 100% sure it's, it's not the same as people who are equally sick of a different illness? I don't know if I would say that. But in my mind, at some point, and this point was really early, this point I think was when the experience was in Europe and in China, we had had a couple of studies, I think one from the Netherlands, one from China, that said there may be more clotting going on here than one would expect. And the moment somebody tossed that hypothesis out there, the question was already there, which was, do these patients benefit from escalated doses of anticoagulation, full-dose anticoagulation instead of the typical prophylactic doses, or, or something in between? That question was right there in smack dab in the middle of March. And the only way to answer that question is a randomized control trial. That mm-hmm. was the only way back in March. It's still the only way today. <laughs> we still don't have the results of such a study. We thankfully have a number of brave investigators who are doing those studies, and a lot of places are accruing. But along the way, we had a lot of top centers just pull the trigger on different anticoagulation strategies, from full-dose anticoagulation to something in between to profidose. They, they've tried different things, off-protocol, non-randomized, these results have been published in a number of journals. They're very hard to interpret. And so I'm still waiting to know, should I, as the doctor seeing a COVID patient who's getting hospitalized or transferring one to the unit, escalate DVT and PE prophylaxis beyond what we would typically do? And I don't know the answer to that question, and it's November. And I wish I had known it a few months ago. Yeah. Obviously, the randomized trial gives us the best evidence, but, but there's an activation energy and a time yeah. commitment and, and human subjects review and all kinds of uh, hurdles. How do you get the funding for it? What do you do in the meantime? It's almost a philosophical question about how we should practice and incorporate randomized trials into medicine. I would say we do have a model for how it could have been done, which is recovery. The, the yeah. investigators from Oxford, it didn't take them a whole lot of money, but able to run a extremely large, multi-arm, randomized, pragmatic study, 15% accrual among hospitalized patients in the UK. They're running it on a shoestring budget. It's answering really important questions from convalescent plasma, which is coming, hydroxychloroquine, which has come, um, and dexamethasone. It has so much power that they can actually have pre-specified subgroups and look for interaction coefficients so we know you know, this is maybe working if you're on the vent and on O2, but maybe not if you're not on the vent and yeah. not on O2. I think any future pandemic preparedness plan needs a randomized trial agenda built right into it. And that'll be not just the drugs we give, but also prone positioning, ventilatory strategies, early intubation, anticoagulation, the questions that we didn't get satisfactorily answered. Yeah, well, let's cover another one. And yeah. I, I want to share an anecdote with you. Back in the spring when we had our first surge of cases, of hospitalized patients, and I hope our last one, although things aren't looking so good right. right now, right. we embedded ID doctors into the general medical teams. And I was assigned to two medical teams that had a 100% census of COVID-19 patients wow. um, with other medical problems, of course. And on one of the two teams, all of the patients, when they got admitted, were started right away on hydroxychloroquine, mm. right away. And on the other team, which rounded just across the hall, Essentially, none of them received it. So this was all done without any input from their ID consultant, which is me. So how would you explain this? And what would you have done in my situation? So these two teams are the Republican team and the Democrat team? Or is, that how it, <laughs> <laughs> is that how these teams were? No, I mean, I think it's, it's really interesting. I'm reading between the lines, but it sounds like there is somebody who feels strongly on one team and somebody on the other team who doesn't feel strongly the other way. That is so often the case in clinical medicine from the choice of antibiotic for pneumonia, um, that there's often a red pill and a blue pill and different doctors have different preferences. (laughs) But the moment you suggest that the way we settle this question is through randomization, people have some aversion to that. 
And I think I was critical a little bit when I saw something trickle out of a Harvard hospital that showed <laughs> sort of the go-to protocol. It goes back to the age-old question, which is, under what circumstances should you try medicines that don't have proven efficacy? Different people can disagree, but there's sort of some general principles in medicine that we've long subscribed to, which is that the healthier somebody is, the higher evidence thresholds we typically have before giving something a shot versus the sicker they are, the more the natural history is certain versus the more it's uncertain, and the more something is rare, we're more likely to give something a shot than if it's very common. And with SARS-CoV-2, you know, even though it's quite fearsome, the majority of people, even hospitalized people, are still going to recover. The majority of people are going to do okay. The pretest probability any novel drug works in a novel virus situation is probably on the lower side of drug development. Yes, very low. Very low. Not Alzheimer's low, but but low nonetheless, you know, the pretest probability drug works. And so these things I think should be factored. And, and then the rarity of the situation. We wish it were rare, but unfortunately it was quite common. And so it kind of met all the preconditions, I think, for randomization um, really early on. Yeah obviously turned out not to work. Yeah, I would like to go back to that medical team and explore with them how they feel in retrospect. I do know that, that there is a hospital in our city that put it on their protocol, but yeah. I want to say that we did not. This was something that they elected to do because, as you said, there was a very persuasive, charismatic resident who basically made the argument, we don't know who's going to get sicker with this disease, and so we're just going to give them the best chance they've got. Yeah. I want to switch now to a study you mentioned already, and this is the NHS recovery trial. And they released a press release on dexamethasone, and essentially it showed in this large randomized clinical trial, we are about to release the data that the intervention of dexamethasone given to hospitalized patients with COVID-19 improved survival, and they, they showed very impressive data. And the re response from a lot of people uh, initially was that they couldn't trust the data because they hadn't seen it yet, even though the study had to be stopped because it was such a benefit for certain populations. Now, what did you think when these data were released? How, how should we have approached it? Dexamethasone, of course, is widely available. And there were some parts of the world that were already using corticosteroids right. in treatment of COVID-19. So and then we have a randomized clinical trial right. and this press release. What right. would you do if you, if you were the doctors managing cases at that time? Well, I came out guns blazing and I said it ought to be given right away. And I took people to task who said we ought to wait for the full publication because they would kill people while we waited for that publication, which was going to confirm the press release. There was not going to be any red flags in that publication, and there weren't, that were in the <laughs> press release. And how did I know that? I mean... I guess I'm somebody who's thought a fair bit about medicine by press release, and I hate it, actually. In my line of work, oncology, we live by medicine by press release. There's a <laughs> press release every week that tells me to do something different, and I know that often the trials have some serious limitations or pitfalls that I should know before I leap on that situation. So what are the differences here? Um, one difference, you know, in oncology, medicine by press release is typically for-profit companies bringing extremely costly drugs to market based on endpoints that don't necessarily capture how well people live or how long they live. In the recovery trial, we have Oxford investigators. They're impartial. They're testing a drug that's pennies a day, you know, that's really low cost, widely available. So it doesn't have that same financial conflict. The second difference is when it comes to proprietary clinical trials in oncology and the press releases, you've never read the protocol. You've never seen the statistical plan. And even when it's published, you may never see those things. They can often be redacted or not forthcoming. With recovery, even though they had only issued press release results, they had posted in advance the full statistical analysis plan and the full protocol of the study, which is actually much shorter than most study protocols. So the way I thought about recovery was 
A paper and a supplement, that's a passport. It tells you who somebody is. But a statistical analysis plan and the press release, that's a driver's license and social security card. <laughs> it's a double ID way of finding out someone's the real deal. Some of the people who commented that were reluctant to embrace the press release, I think they were well-intentioned. I mean, they thought that you want more information, but I think they missed some of the differences here, that this is a pandemic, it's raging, the cost of the medication is cheap. The other thing that they were kind of missing is that we have already demonstrated an appetite to try things based on next to nothing, such as hydroxychloroquine. <laughs> so why would we not have an appetite to try things based on a 11,000-person randomized trial that purportedly has an all-cause mortality benefit? Um, yeah, yeah. You know, so I think that the calculus was fundamentally different than the typical medicine by press release. I thought it was also fascinating that some of the same people who are saying, I don't trust it until I see the actual paper, yeah. would be recommending tocilizumab. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's a whole different topic. Which... No, right. They're recommending TOSI and full-dose anticoagulation, but they want to see this publication. Sure. Okay. Right, exactly. I see. So we're now going to talk about a really tough problem, okay. and that's the people who survive COVID-19 and then have long-term adverse effects of yeah. some sort, whether it's palpitations or it's fatigue or brain fog or shortness of breath, they're really suffering. And and right now we don't really know what to do for them. This is the so-called long COVID sufferers. Any thoughts how we should approach this tricky clinical condition? Um, and you think about it from both the medical side and also the non-medical side, like the press. Yeah, when all is said and done, this is a multi-billion dollar question. One thing I want to say always upfront is that Anybody who comes to see a doctor who feels any symptom, that's a real symptom and that really needs to be taken seriously. And the doctor has to do everything possible to address and ameliorate that symptom. But just because a symptom is real doesn't mean it's really attributable to COVID. There's a couple of sets of related questions. I mean, one is, we are going to see a lot of people who come in with long COVID. The genie is already out of the bottle. There's been rampant media coverage and that media coverage is getting people to think about these side effects even if they weren't thinking about them too much before. And it will get a lot of people to present with these constellation of symptoms of long COVID. Some of them will have had documented SARS-CoV-2 prior, and some of them I'm reading don't have a current documented SARS-CoV-2 positive test or antibody. Nonetheless, they could have been affected. That's theoretically true, and, and these could all be false negatives. But it's going to get a lot of people who feel like they have this syndrome. And I think the first question is, how much of this syndrome is really due to having had COVID? And that is a very thorny epidemiologic problem that requires comparators like I saw a study that says among people hospitalized with COVID, what percent have long-term sequela? You need to compare it to among people hospitalized with the flu a year ago or two years ago, what percent had long-term sequela? What is the excess of sequela from this respiratory infection than other respiratory infections? The next piece of the puzzle is, irrespective of why someone feels this way, if people are going to have forgetfulness, memory fog, nausea, a host of symptoms, we might want to try medications from all different classes of medications from perhaps memory medications to mood medications to all sorts of medications may be attempted. I'm a proponent that those medicines should be tested in a randomized fashion to see are they really helping these people. I worry that we're going to create a cottage industry of uncontrolled anecdotal medications being prescribed to these people who are truly suffering, but may not be suffering from the sequela of having had COVID. They may be suffering from something else. And we may never know if some of our treatments are making them better or just adding medications and cost. And then the last part of your question, I think, is the media. 
The media has jumped on this and they've jumped on it hard and they've written many, many stories about long COVID. To some degree, the more stories they write about long COVID, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. There will be a lot more long COVID as a result of those stories. But it doesn't help us get at the cause and it doesn't help us get us at how to make these people feel better. The hardest thing to tread on is the difference in the socio-demographics, the socioeconomics of the people who are being affected by COVID and dying of COVID and the people who are presenting with long COVID. Do they comprise the same racial minorities? Are they the same socioeconomic class? That's an open question that I think needs to be teased out. So I think long COVID, yes, people are suffering. Yes, they deserve sympathy. But we need a whole lot of science to separate yeah. myth from fact. A treatment center or an evaluation center for long COVID would, would be ideal. Yes. The problem, of course, is that right now there is no accepted way to either evaluate or treat it. So it, what we're doing is is essentially a lot of listening, Yes. saying, look, we'll, we'll keep you apprised and if there's something that becomes available that's helpful treatment. But it's, it's a very tough situation. Yeah. I'm going to ask you about the most exciting news we've heard in some time. I'm not sure when this podcast is going to post, but earlier this week, we heard that the uh, first of the late stage vaccine studies, mm. the Pfizer vaccine yeah. study actually demonstrated more than 90% efficacy in reducing symptomatic COVID-19. And we haven't seen much of the data yet. But how do you think these first vaccines, because I assume there will be others that are effective, should be deployed? And how much safety data do you think we need before going ahead? Specifically, there's been people who say we need to wait longer for more safety data before we actually deploy this. And, and I know that you took issue with that. Yes, I take issue with that. So I guess I would say a couple of things. We're not in peacetime. We're in wartime. It's a very different situation than peacetime. What should the standards be to deploy a new pneumococcal vaccine? That's the kind of question that we can, we can mull over. We can have a leisurely conversation. But right now, every day, we either experience the runaway spread of SARS-CoV-2 and the downward sequela of it, or that some of the interventions we're using to stop SARS-CoV-2 leading to massive harms and massive downstream casualties that we may not fully appreciate. Lockdowns do not come at no price. They come at great price, often to the poorest people. We hear situations about globally tens of millions on the brink of starvation. Um, I think these have to be taken into account when one thinks about the threshold to deploy a vaccine approval. We have guidance from FDA. They said, if you come in with a 50% efficacy and a lower bound 95% confidence interval, I think above 30%, we're going to grant you approval. We've got an interim analysis with a point estimate of 90%. And I think I've seen some calculations at the lower bound of that confidence interval. We'll see what it comes in finally. But right now it's around 60%. I bet the final efficacy of this was not going to be 90%. It's going to be lower, but let's say it's 70%. That's still terrific. It's not going to go through traditional vaccine approval. It's going to get an emergency use authorization for an infectious disease in the middle of a pandemic setting, an EUA. The, the FDA had previously suggested that they would give that when there was a median follow-up of two months of everybody in this 40K person randomized study, which means that 20K people, 10K in each arm, you know, they're going to have two months of follow-up. And then there was a movement, a petition to say, we don't want a median of two months follow-up. We want a minimum of two months follow-up. <laughs> so for the extra 20K, instead of having one month follow-up or 1.4 months follow-up, we're going to wait until they're all past two months. I had a lot of difficulty with this proposal <laughs> because I saw from the calendar it would clearly push the EUA out beyond the election. That was clear. But the additional safety information you get from taking 10K people who have 1.78 months follow-up and pushing that to 2.1 months follow-up, I'm not necessarily convinced that that's a lot additional safety information. On the margin, it's very, very small. And it has to be weighed against the cost, which is now a two-week delay in approving this vaccine and giving it out. 
Now, some people say, well, you can't give it out anyway. They don't haven't manufactured it. Well, my understanding is they have a lot of it ready and it can be deployed very, very quickly. Yeah. The trade-off here is not safety versus speed. It's an incremental increase in safety, which is quite marginal versus a three-week delay at a time where the virus is running rampant across this country. And I find it hard to believe that that's a worthwhile trade-off. Um, yep. we, we're never going to get perfect safety until we deploy it, actually. You know, a few hundred thousand people, then we'll get a sense of rare AEs and things like that. And, you know, it ties into long COVID, actually, because there'll be some people who have symptoms after the vaccine that may not be attributable to the vaccine. And the standard we use to say this is due to the vaccine or this is due to prior COVID, that sort of epidemiological standard is the same, I think. Um, it, it shouldn't be different. You know, there's some fascinating parallels with, with Lyme disease. Don't say that. I, I think you're right. I can't help it because there was a Lyme disease vaccine yeah. approved, and it was actually eventually pulled because it started to get into the controversies that are associated with Lyme disease to begin with, um, which is that there's people who test negative and have Lyme symptoms, and people who test positive have persistent symptoms, and then there are people who got the vaccine and right. said... I have those same symptoms. It's obviously a sensitive issue for people. Yes. And I, I've been surprised by the massive social media presence in this space. But it is an important lesson. And it really has a lot of parallels. I think you're spot on. Um, I do want to now talk about some medical publishing issues. Mm. And the one that I want to focus on first, you took me to task on, not, not me directly, but people like me. Because some public health officials, epidemiologists, policy wonks, and ID types, and I'm in the last group, uh, have written position papers or editorials promoting uh, bold moves to contain the epidemic, along with sometimes very strong critiques of national policies. And I'd say that the most prominent recent example was the New England Journal of Medicine's editorial, Dying in a Leadership yeah. Vacuum, which I thought was actually very well written, but wasn't to your taste. Uh, give me your view. <laughs> well, I guess it's multifaceted. That particular paper I thought was interesting because it was an editorial that was written and was subtweeting Donald J. Trump. It was all about Donald J. Trump and his failure to lead us properly through this pandemic. And I don't dispute that claim. In fact, I'm quite sympathetic to that view. I think that that's probably <laughs> right. Um, but it didn't say Donald J. Trump. It tiptoed around it. And I was like, if you're going to call this guy is the problem, then you better call <laughs> this guy. Just say his name. Say his name. If you point the finger at this guy, just say his name. I want you to do that. And so that was one of my critiques of the paper. I also think it speaks to something that's the harder challenge, which is how do we in the publishing world in medicine and science, how much of a barrier do we have between us and open political advocacy? And there've always been journals that are incredibly intertwined with political advocacy. I think of The Lancet. The Lancet mm -hmm. has written papers on what we should do in Kashmir, what we should do in Sub-Saharan Africa, what we should do in the crisis in Yemen. It's written a number of papers about foreign policy. I, it had sort of a famous uh, series of articles on the war in Iraq and the death toll from the war in Iraq and Afghanistan from George W. Bush's administration. The New England Journal of Medicine has historically been quite reticent, very reluctant to engage in political matters, particularly on the eve of an election. And at that time, of course, the pundits all believed it was going to be a landslide for Mr. Biden. And so I wondered if the delta on getting people to think more about public health was offset by the delta of losing the respect of people who are politically not aligned with the way I'm politically aligned. I'm a, I'm a progressive. And so the risk-benefit calculation of their publication, I think, is are we going to persuade more people to join public health or are we going to potentially alienate a lot mm. of people in these red states? And so, I don't know, I was critical of it on my podcast. I still don't have a great answer for this entire space because, you know, it's changed a lot. You and I will both admit 10 years ago, 
we could be doctors and we were so apolitical, right? We were so outside of political processes. But now politics has blundered so colossally in the space of medicine and public health, we feel drawn to it. But there is still, I think, a recognition that it's hard to admit when you're on Twitter that, you know, 50% of the doctors in this country are Republicans. I mean, they have historically held Republican policies. And I don't think we want to lose them. We don't want to make them feel like they can't participate in these discussions. We don't want to push them away. We want to bring them into our discussion. And so I worry that sometimes when you thread this needle of political advocacy and speaking about public health, you can not really help people join your cause and push people away. And uh, that's my concern. One question is, will it actually improve the situation yeah. at all? And perhaps by at least calling out the problems. You rally the troops who feel like you want something different. But I, I, I see your point. I mean, I really do. I don't think it convinced anybody. I would agree with you on that one. It made us feel good. And I'll give you another analogy that I think is a very difficult problem right now, which is the mask and the mask mandate. For better or worse, where we are right as we're talking in November after the election in 2020, there's a lot of us who believe that this is a very simple and easy thing we can do to show our patriotism, to try to decrease the spread of this virus. And there's a bunch of us who don't want to wear one. And I'm not sure we're going to win by having mandates or policing. I'm not sure the best way to win, but I think you want to have people who are psychologists, behavioral scientists, um, and really sort of tacticians of persuasion at the table. A lot of people toss out seatbelt analogies to me that if we had a mandate, seatbelts went up. You know, they didn't go up in three days. They went up on the order of three years uh, or, mm-hmm. or, or 20 years, and we don't have 20 years. You know, 20 years from now, you can wear a mask. I wouldn't, you know, nobody cares, right? You need them to do it in, in 20 minutes, and that's a very difficult problem. I actually often think that, that if we had said at the outset, mask wearing in public places indoors is required, uh, because that's where the evidence yes, that's right. is strongest. There's really not much evidence that wearing masks outside prevents spread of the virus or protects you. But when you're outside, it's in public, and so yes. it's supposed to sort of be a signal that you're a mask wearer. Right. Anyway, last controversial topic. I can't leave this discussion because I'm married to a pediatrician without asking you about schools. Uh, yeah. Schools closed in March, and that has had major consequences, and many places still have closed schools. Uh, what are we to do, both you know, as doctors and also as public health officials and also as teachers and parents? How do we manage this really difficult problem? Yeah, this is a big issue. And in June, I didn't have a strong opinion, but then I started reading a lot about this space. And my opinion has coalesced and it has become strong. When the pandemic was blowing at us in early March, I think it was entirely reasonable to suspend schools at that point because we did not know where we would be. New York City ended up being devastated by SARS-CoV-2 then, and and you all in Boston to some degree as well. But that could have been every city in America. We just didn't know. And so in that setting of uncertainty, as Taleb says, sort of a fat tail probability distribution of what the worst events could be, I think it's entirely reasonable to suspend schools. By June, July, August, I think we were getting information that children, when exposed to the same household conditions of somebody with it. They're less likely to acquire the virus. There are some contact tracing studies. Well, first of all, they're very poorly represented in contact tracing studies to begin with, which tells you something. And there are contact tracing studies to suggest they may be less likely to spread. Um, And then we started to get the European experience in August where schools could be safely reopened without devastating consequences to the staff. And there's a number of, I think, really well-done studies showing that teachers may be slightly at increased risk of acquiring the virus, but not tremendously at increased risk. And so it looks like it's pretty safe for teachers. It's certainly safe for the children. We now know the IFR in kids is 
It's very low. It's very low. Yeah. And then I started delving into the economics and educational literature, which I was frankly not that familiar with. And I learned through a number of publications that school is the only tattered rope ladder of opportunity left in this country for poor kids, for minority kids. There's nothing else. We have stripped all the other ladders of opportunity in this country. We've left one tattered ladder. Mm. And now, right now in November, there are places in this country that are hard hit and maybe we'll give them a pass. And there's some teachers who are because they're older or have comorbidities, they're reluctant to go in person. I'm willing to give them a pass too. But there are places where low test positivity with a young, healthy teacher workforce, and we still don't have in-person schools. And the more I study the problem, I come to the conclusion that it is a misalignment between incentives that the teachers and, unfortunately, the unions that represent them have the incentive to keep things closed, at least on the short term, and they have done a lot to keep it closed. I actually think that's against their long-term interest. It will hurt public schools in the long term. It's a very thorny political problem. The moment DJT said we ought to open schools was the moment that 50% of people had a vehement (laughs) opposition to schools. It would have been better off if he had not put himself in the debate. But just like a broken watch is right twice a day, he was right that it is something that is the foremost thing. If we could only do one thing in a society and everything else must be closed, it should be schools. <laughs> you don't agree with the, having the bars and restaurants open and the schools closed? <laughs> yeah, or, or large sporting events or strip clubs, as is true in some places. The schools are closed, but the strip clubs are open. Or, or the schools are closed, but the after-school basketball practice is open because the teachers get a little bonus pay or the coach gets bonus pay for the basketball class. I mean, our priorities are misaligned here. And I'm actually, with the news of the vaccine and with the news of Joe Biden, my optimism that we can reopen schools has sunk because now I think many people will face the calculus that the vaccine should be deployed in teachers before they go back and that we should wait for Biden to come and finance the air filtration systems of schools before we go back. And I think that's where a lot of people are emotionally and it's going to be a hard battle. But places like in the Bay Area, crack a window, put a mask on and get to school. And to Mm -hmm. be honest, I don't do anything more in my county clinic than those precautions. It can run. We have very low test positivity here. Okay, I'm going to end on a lighter note. One of the times that I've laughed out loud at one of your Twitter posts was the time that you described being invited to give a presentation where the person said that they wanted your PowerPoint file, a signed permission to record form, a biography, five multiple choice questions, and a conflict of interest form completed and sent to the person a month in advance of the talk. And you said, if you're going to invite me to do that, just don't invite me. So just reading that that, that you had that response uh, made me laugh out loud at the bravery of writing that. So um, Dr. Prasad, uh, I want to thank you for spending time talking to us about COVID-19 and other things and evidence-based medicine. And uh, this, uh, just a reminder, I've been talking to Dr. Vinay Prasad, Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of California in San Francisco. Thanks a lot, Vinay. Dr. Sachs, thanks so much.